Okay, so hopefully you've been reading through the Bible with me. For those of you who are new with us, you can pick one of these up in the lobby. We are together reading the same passages of Scripture every day, and the end result is we're going to go through the Bible in a year. But I'm a little ahead so I can prepare my messages. You probably started either yesterday or today Ecclesiastes. Uh, I read a couple weeks ago Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and you'll be there in a, you know, a few days. But this chapter had a beautiful kind of like introduction to today's lesson. So even though we're not there yet, you'll be there soon. It was the perfect introduction. So let me just read part of it for you. Here's what it says. There's a time for everything. Time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant and a time to uproot. Time to kill, time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, and a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and time to speak. There's a time and place pretty much for everything. And today we're going to learn through some of the passages we looked at and some others I'm going to share with you this morning. There's also a time to reach out to people and then there's a time to just let people go. Time to cut people out of your life. I was first introduced to this concept for this lesson in the reading you had just a couple days ago in Matthew chapter 15. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. So the disciples came to him and asked, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So he said something that offended the religious leaders. And here's what Jesus said. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Leave them. You think about it, those are pretty intense words. Here's the Son of God telling the chief ministers of his day that there's some people you need to just not deal with. Leave them alone. Get away from them. Cut them out. Leave them. They're blind. They lead the blind. They're heading for one way and one way only. That's the pit. Nothing you can do for them. Nothing they can do for you. Just leave them. Pretty heavy. Because, you know, we like to think of Jesus as being all-inclusive. And everybody could always come to Jesus. Well, that's true up to a certain point. Sometimes people are in a place where, you know, there's just no, there's nothing left for them anymore. There are times in the Bible where God cuts people off. Think about Pharaoh, for example. God hardened his heart and used him to accomplish his will only to discard him when it was all done. Sounds kind of harsh, yeah? But Pharaoh had plenty of opportunity. It got to the point the way I teach it, is God said, you know, Pharaoh's worthless in and of himself. He's never going to come to faith in me, but I can use him to get a whole bunch of people to believe in me. So I'm going to use him. But it didn't do Pharaoh any good. He let Pharaoh go. Jesus let Judas go. What you do, do quickly. He could have stopped him. He didn't stop him. He used him. And he let him go. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about God letting people go. Listen, 
Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up. Dot, dot, dot. There comes a time in some people's lives where God just lets them go. In the same way, there might come a time, and probably will in your life, where you're going to have to let somebody go too. Some years back, I learned a lesson uh, there's this group out there, it's called Al-Anon, and it's a support group for family members and friends of alcoholics. So there seems to be a support group for everybody and everything nowadays. Every addiction you might have, there's a support group for it, which is great. I'm not being critical. I think that's awesome. But they also have support groups for people who are dealing with those people because it's not easy to deal with an addict. In fact, it's miserable. But when you love somebody and they're suffering, they can really ruin your life and make you miserable. And so there's this group that kind of teaches people how to survive, how to cope. And one of the things Al-Anon teaches is how to disengage in love. What I mean by that is, well, let me give you a story somebody shared with me. Um, Husband comes home. He's drunk. And I mean as drunk as drunk can be, vomits all over himself, falls down on the floor, laying in his vomit. Happens all the time. Wife loves him, knows he's messed up, cleans him, changes his clothes, brings him into bed. He wakes up in clean bed, fresh sheets. Every morning, this happens. Finally, this woman learned not to do that anymore. First of all, it was breaking her heart, but secondly, He's waking up in fresh sheets when he goes to bed and vomit. She decided to leave him there so he could wake up in his vomit, clean himself, and see what he's doing to himself with the hope that that misery would be just what it takes to get him to turn around. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But at least she's not going down that path of misery with him. I love you, but I'm not going to hell with you. And I mean it in the metaphorical sense in this instance. If you want your life to be this miserable, that's up to you. I'm going out with the girls. If I come home and find you laying in your vomit, I'm going to bed. Disengaging in love. Um, but rather than me sharing a story, let me, let me share some addicts. Let me tell you how they think about disengaging in love. There are practical things that families can do to avoid enabling their loved one to continue in addiction, and that will help their loved one into a place where they can choose recovery. One of the major things for families is learning to detach with love. My family, whenever I was in my addiction, they, they loved me, but they loved me from afar. They didn't come to my rescue when I picked up the phone and said, hey, I'm out here in the middle you know, of the street, you can't keep rescuing an addict. I mean, they've got to deal with what's going on. You know, all you can really do is pray for them. And, and when they come on their own for help, you know, be there for them when they finally realize that they need some help. There's always comes a time when you have to leave the person or let the person do what they're gonna do. 
And that's really, really hard. I don't, I don't say that lightly. I've seen people that you never think would, would recover get into recovery. I mean, years, decades of active opiate addiction, heroin addiction, alcoholism, and then something clicks with them and they get in recovery and the process starts. I guess for families, it's always a question of um, when to let go. Do you let the person struggling take you down as well and take the rest of your family down as well? I believe with all my heart that I got in recovery because I know of at least one person who loved me dearly that never stopped praying for me. And that's my grandmother. And she didn't confront me a lot. She didn't really um, address the issue. But I found out later that she prayed for me every single day. Is there anything more powerful that you can do for a loved one? I don't think so. Disengaging or detaching in love. I found a true story online about some people that learned this lesson. They had to learn it through some trial and error. But let me share with you their story. My son, Alex, shoplifted to support his addiction. And when he turned 18, he was no longer a minor. And with his record, they'd take him to jail. He'd make that phone call from jail. Please come and bail me out. I'm never going to do this again. And off we'd go. And after a while, this was getting expensive. And my wife, Darlene, and I were not learning our lesson. And by the way, neither was our son. We were doing the same thing over and over. And our son was doing the same thing over and over. Nothing was changing. He'd make the same promises, we'd take the same action, and we couldn't understand why he kept using. This is where the idea of detaching and setting boundaries started with us. We decided we weren't going to pay his bail the next time. But it wasn't easy. As a mom and dad, it's very hard to think of your child sitting in jail. In jail, he witnessed a person getting stabbed. The food is universally bad at jails, and without money on your books, you can't even get a toothbrush to brush your teeth. He had food stolen from him, and at times, he had to fight to keep it. He spent two days in solitary confinement for defending himself against an inmate who attacked him. Some jails put the mentally ill in with criminals, such as rapists and murderers, and then put them all together with the drug addicts. It's hard to think of yourself as a loving parent when you know that for just a few hundred dollars you could get your child out of those situations. You wonder, if I don't pay the bail, am I, am I really a loving parent? But eventually the day comes when you don't pay. We once let our son sit in the Johnson County KS Resort for 11 days because, he wouldn't because we wouldn't post a $50 bond. Sounds mean, doesn't it? This is about detaching with love and not enabling. Your boundaries must match your values. A value we hold close and taught our kids is that stealing is wrong. Stealing carries consequences, and it should. Bailing them out removes or minimizes the consequences. Contrary to our values, we were bailing him out. We hated what he was exposed to in jail. However, we had established a pattern. He got caught, he called, we jumped with cash in hand. Darlene and I sat down and determined where we would go and where we would no longer go. This began to help us establish our boundaries. 
You can't cover all those possible situations. We just cover what you can and know that once you learn to judge behaviors right and wrong, the instinct will kick in and you'll stop enabling. The exercise becomes easier and more natural. Once boundaries are determined, you must sit down with your child, an addict that may or may not be high at the time, and explain where you will no longer go with him. In fact, you can even start each sentence with, because we love you. And then, for instance, we can no longer bail you out of jail. All of your life, we taught you that stealing was wrong, and you know that in your heart. So we cannot support your actions by bailing you out of jail when you do something you've been taught all your life is wrong. I hope you understand, and I hope you can accept our decision. Oh yes, he still called, begged, pleaded, and cried from jail. But we, what we had been doing in the past didn't work. We had to change the rules. But that didn't mean we loved him less. It meant we loved him more because it hurt so terribly to let him sit in jail. Even with his begging and pleading, we were still able to sleep at night and have a moment of downtime. He was in jail, and we knew jail was safer than being on the street scoring and shooting more heroin. We then began to see jail as protective custody. We detached from Alex's crimes and actions, but we did not detach from him. We still loved him took some of the $10 for 10 minute, $10 for 10 minute collect calls from jail. And on those calls, we always ended by saying we loved him and asked him to please help himself. We were doing all we could and all we knew to do. Love and support the person inside, not the addiction controlling the life. True story, repeated thousands of times, even in our fair city. Sometimes you just have to let go. Sometimes it's for our own benefit, letting go. Sometimes it's for, for their benefit, letting go. And sometimes it benefits both of us to let go. But the Bible speaks quite a bit on letting go, so I'm going to share some passages with you. 1 Corinthians 5, um, let me read 11 and 13. I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person, don't even eat. Then verse 13 says, expel that wicked man from among you. Now, I like how it says, do not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Notice it doesn't say, don't associate with anyone who is a brother. Because the implication is, if you're living that kind of lifestyle... Maybe you're not really a brother. You're just calling yourself a brother, but I'm not seeing it in your life. That's the implication. It says, expel the wicked person from among you. Don't even eat with them. The hope, though, the idea isn't you're punishing them. The idea is the hope that they'll see that their actions have consequences and that they will hate those consequences and repent and come to faith and come back to the person they used to be. It's about detaching in love. Second Thessalonians puts it this way. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. 
In fact, in the passage in the Old Testament where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, that very context talks about don't letting your brother's sin rebuke them. Sometimes you have to say things and do things to people to help them. That's what love's about. Love's got to be tough sometimes. With the story of Alex, they learned that it was more loving to let him sit in jail than less loving. At first they thought, oh, if we love him, we wouldn't let him do this. But then they realized, no, it's more loving because this is the only thing that might work. And we know it's more loving because doing this is killing us. It hurts so much to do. But for his benefit, we will take the pain and the grief. Sometimes we have to let people go. Sometimes it's for their own good. Sometimes it's for our own good. Not just to protect ourselves from the pain they cause, but they can take you down with them. Um, The Bible says, and I quote, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You keep hanging out with bad people, there's a chance it's going to rub off on you. My brother works in a jail in another uh, state, and he gave me the statistic. I don't remember now what it was because it's been a few years, but I'm going to just throw it out maybe 50%. Basically, half the people in jail didn't commit the crime, but they were with the person who did. Now, you can't tell the officer while you're driving the getaway car you didn't mean it or you didn't know. When he just jumped into Circle K, he thought you, were go- you thought he was going to get a big gulp. You didn't know he was going to rob the place. Cop doesn't care. You're the getaway driver. Say, that's not fair. No, don't hang out with those people. That's the point I'm trying to make. For that type of people, you better be very careful about the type and kind of time you spend with them because they can bring you down with them. So, talking about letting go and distancing yourself so people don't bring you down with them, there's a group of awesome, brave, strong, well-trained people called lifeguards. Their job is to save your life if you're in a situation in the water that you can't get out of. Now, I would think in a swimming pool that job would be pretty easy, but in an ocean with the waves and not so much the undercurrents and the lakes and the rivers. But the fact of the matter is, lifeguards are trained not to allow the person they're rescuing to take them down with them. Because when people are drowning, they freak, they panic. The lifeguard comes and they just want to grab onto the lifeguard. Well, they're not a buoy. They won't float. You grab onto a lifeguard like that and pin his arms, he's going down with you, and then you're both dead. So what's the lifeguard going to do? He's going to stay away from you and say, I'm not helping until you calm down. Lifeguards are actually trained to hurt you. What do you mean, Steve? Well, if you go to rescue them and they're freaking and they won't let you rescue them, you smack them. Bam! Calm down! I'm here to help. Even push them underwater. They're already drowning. They're trained to push you underwater. Pull you back up and say, calm down or I can't help you. Grab them by the hair and yank them. Love's got to be tough. Sometimes a lifeguard's just got to let you drown and hopefully resuscitate you. Because the only option is you're both dead. Better one than two. As long as the lifeguard's alive, you got hope of being rescued. But you can't drown the lifeguard. It's the same concept with us. It's okay to be a lifeguard, but it's not okay to let the person you're trying to help take you down with them. 
The Bible tells us at times we must detach. We must let go. It's not optional. Listen, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Obviously, the assumption is this is a major sin, not some petty little thing. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. You've won your brother back. You've restored fellowship. It's all good. Praise God. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And I tell you what, when the tax collector comes knocking at the door, you don't invite him in for tea. You have to detach. Jesus knows these things happened, and he told us how to deal with them. If somebody sins against you, go to them. Maybe they'll listen. Like what? Well, let's just say, you know, somebody who's a brother in the Lord, you've employed him for the last five years, next thing you know it, the cash register is emptied, and he's in Hawaii. He comes back, and you're like, dude, you just stole from me, you know, $1,000 and went to Hawaii. He said, I stole from you. I've been working like a slave for you for five years. You don't appreciate me. I needed a vacation. I took one. You can call it what you want. This is theft. I could have you arrested. But instead, you come to the church and you say, you know what? I'm going to ask a couple of friends to talk some sense into this guy. Maybe we can do this without going to the courts. And you grab a couple of friends from church, people that know him, know you, and you go and you talk to him. Oh, what, you're bringing your, your buddies along, the mafia? Hey, did you steal from him? Hey, I didn't steal from him. I slaved for him. He owes me. So he's not denying it. You may feel wronged, and that may be something worth talking about down the road, but right now, you cannot take somebody else's money and go to Hawaii. That's a crime. That's a sin. It's called theft. It's against the commandments. You're in the wrong here. Get out of my house. So you leave. Steve, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but such and such happened. I brought two people with me. This is what he said to them. So I get on the phone with Michael and Jose and said, dudes, we got to go make a visit. And the guy treats us just as poorly as he treated everybody else. We say, okay, hate to tell you this, but until you repent, you're not welcome back on our campus. You're not welcome at any of our activities. We're taking you off our email list. You're persona non grata at our congregation. And then we tell you, depending on the circumstances. That's what Jesus said to do. Why? Well, because this person has harmed somebody, they're in evil sin, and they won't repent. The hope is that after being treated with such severity, they will see the error of their ways and repent. But they may not. They may not. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. You pray, of course. But the end result is it's in their decision. It's their ha- in their hands what they choose to do. You will grieve. You will mourn. You will feel sad. And you will be decide- beside yourself with confusion. How could he be this way? I thought this was a man of God. Men of God don't act this way. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. Guy's gone nuts. Just keep praying for him. Sometimes we have to let people go. Another example from Scripture 
Now, it's actually being said that there's sexual immorality among you. So terrible that not even the heathen would be guilty of it. I'm told that a man is sleeping with his stepmother. You should be filled with grief. And the man who has done such a thing should be expelled from your fellowship. You know the saying, a little bit of yeast makes the whole batch of dough rise. You must remove the old yeast so that you will be entirely pure. In this instance, we've got two things in light if you look at the context. One, of course, is hoping that this person will be restored, that they will see the errors of their ways and you know, repent. But the other is the protection of the body. You start allowing people like this to be treated normally within your fellowship, your fellowship's going to start turning south fast. It's going to corrupt. The moral integrity of your group is going to decline and sin is going to spread. Sin is, sin is contagious. And you have to quarantine it or everybody's going to catch something. Sometimes you just have to disengage. You have to let people go. Love has to be tough. When Alex's parents were disregarding the scriptures, not intentionally, I'm not saying they did this intentionally, but when they were disregarding the scriptures, nothing changed other than that they kept getting sadder and sadder and broker and broker. But when they decided to detach, this thing that I read to you was written after that point. Alex, the heroin addict, broke his parents' heart but as, the writing, as of the writing of the article, he was two years clean and sober. It worked. And I'm so thankful that it did. In many instances, it does. But not in all. Sometimes we just have to let people go. And it's a sad, sad thing. But there is no better alternative. Now, on the other side of the coin... There are some people that God promises he will never let go. Pharaoh wasn't one of those people. Judas wasn't one of those people. Most everybody in the world aren't those people. See, they have a choice to make as to whether they want to be those people or not. Every one of us has a decision to make whether we're going to pledge our allegiance to the Lord God of the universe or not. If we believe in Jesus and turn from our sins... God takes us into his family. And those within his family, he promises he will never let go. Listen to what Jesus said. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, even though for a lot of the world's population, where they're going to end up is questionable, they may be let go, if you make a commitment to Jesus, he makes a commitment to you that you will never be let go. If you've not yet made that commitment, what are you waiting for? I'd encourage you, urge you to make that commitment before you leave church this morning. You might want to pray something like this, Lord God, I do believe in you. I believe you sent your son, Jesus, to die for our sins, for my sins. And I do sin. I do things you don't want me to do. But I want to change. I want to be what you want me to be. And I promise to follow you 
the best I can for the rest of my life. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again, and I want to be his. Please save me. Amen. And if you can say a prayer like that from your heart, you've transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from those who are possibly let go to those who can never be let go. And if you did make that decision, we'd like to know about it so we can talk to you about getting baptized and start you on your new journey. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I pray right now for the people in our church who have friends and family who are struggling with this very thing right now. They have loved ones who are hurting themselves and hurting their families. And it's just a knife in people's hearts. I pray that you would give your people the courage and the wisdom to disengage with love, to detach in love, to find a good support group, and to get the body of Christ praying for them. And that the healing would begin in them right away. And in those they're detaching from, also right away. I pray for those, Lord, who have not gone through this, that we never will. But that we'd be willing to be there for those who do. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us to be patient with others, to be strong, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.